Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, December 6th. The last 24 hours have been very tense and potentially consequential in Congress. They've been stuck on a bill for new aid to Israel and Ukraine because Republicans insist on including new U.S. border control measures and Democrats are resisting them. Aid to Israel right at this moment is also being questioned because of the way they're fighting the war in Gaza with so many civilian deaths. We'll hear a clip of Chuck Schumer in his role as Senate Majority Leader on tying U.S. aid, or I should say on tying Israel and Ukraine aid to U.S. southern border policies. We'll hear that clip of Senate Majority Leader Schumer in a minute. The leader of the House, meanwhile, Speaker Mike Johnson, says he will release some January 6th Capitol riot footage with the faces of the participants blurred so they don't get charged with crimes. That, as you might imagine, is getting pushed back as, wait, this is coming from the party of law and order? And a House hearing on anti-Semitism that included the presidents of several major universities is drawing gasps in many places for multiple presidents' refusal to say calling for genocide against Jews violates campus speech policies. We'll play one of those exchanges. And there's more, too, that we probably won't get to at, as I said, what seems like a very tense and consequential time on Capitol Hill right now with so much going on. Joining us with some details is Jake Sherman, co-founder of the D.C. politics news site Punchbowl News and co-host of the Daily Punch podcast from Punchbowl News. He's also co-author of the book, The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress, and the future of Trump's America. Jake, thanks for coming on today. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me. Let's start with tying border policies to the Israel and Ukraine aid bill. Here's Senate Majority Leader Schumer on that. A few things he said edited down for time. The holdup on the security supplemental has not been over Ukraine or Israel or the Indo-Pacific, but over Republican decision to inject hard right immigration measures into the debate. Democrats agree. Immigration should be debated and addressed. But if Republicans want to raise the issue of immigration right now, the onus is on them to present us with bipartisan ideas. So, Jake, what's the issue? What border policies is Schumer criticizing there as hard right? Well, he's criticizing the House Republicans' bill, H.R. 2, which is uh, a very hard right um, proposal that the House of Representatives passed in May of this year, which Speaker Mike Dodson, who's again new at the job and, and largely unpracticed at, uh, at legislating, he's demanding as, as a price, as he put it behind closed doors yesterday, for Ukraine uh, aid. Now, uh, this is not going to fly. I, I mean, we oftentimes say adding a difficult issue to an, another difficult issue doesn't make the two issues less difficult. In fact, it makes it more difficult. So uh, I, I, at this point, based on our reporting up here, do not think, or at least I'm skeptical, that Ukraine aid is going to pass. Now, Chuck Schumer could put on the floor the Democratic, and he has, the Democratic Ukraine package with Israel and Taiwan, and it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to the Senate Republicans are going to vote it down. So Schumer is right. If, if Republicans do want to uh, inject this into the debate, it is largely incumbent upon them to do so. 
And this isn't just a MAGA Republican thing, though, right? I see Mitt Romney, among others, is insisting on this linkage to border policies. Yeah, I mean, they are. They are. They are, they are linking these two policies because they believe that this is a, a pressure valve. It's a, good, it's a good point. It's a good point in time to um, uh, enact border policies. But um, it does have widespread support, the idea of border policy with Ukraine has has widespread support. Now, the particulars don't have widespread support, at least at this point. And the problem is, if the the House of Representatives is not going to settle, the House Republican Conference is not going to settle for a half measure. They're not going to settle for a watered-down immigration policy or, or something that just does, in their view, half of the job. They want the, the whole cake, so to speak, and they're not going to settle for anything less. So how will they resolve this? I mean, it sounds like... Most members of both parties feel like Ukraine and Israel aid is fairly urgent, um, but it's stuck over the border issue. Any any tea leaves to read here as to how and when this will get resolved? Yeah, so the uh, we have to take this piece by piece. The Ukraine issue is an issue unto itself in that Republicans not only want border policy, but they also want the administration to lay out a more fulsome strategy for Ukraine, how they're going to how the Ukrainians are going to win the war and to make the case why the federal government, why the United the, the American government needs to be sending tens of billions of dollars to Ukraine every couple months. That's what Republicans say. Now, Israel has 14 billion dollars for Israel has widespread support. Mike Johnson, in one of his first acts as speaker, tried to tie cuts to the IRS to the Israel aid bill, which has gone nowhere and will go nowhere in the Democratic Senate. So if if Chuck Schumer were uh, to put a Israel aid board, uh, bill on the floor without any corresponding cuts, it would probably pass the Senate. It, it would put immense pressure on the House to take it up immediately and pass it before the end of the year. We haven't seen Schumer uh, express interest in doing that so far. Well, just as you said, some Republicans want to attach conditions to a Ukraine aid bill. Some Democrats want to attach conditions now, it appears, to an Israel aid bill That's right. um, because of the civilians in Gaza getting killed uh, at the rate that they're getting killed. Bernie Sanders brought it up as an issue in the Senate this week. This would be an action on what the Biden administration itself is now saying about that war, but at a, you know, a funding conditions level. I want to play a clip of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking over the weekend as an example of how the administration appears to be shifting on this. You know, I learned a thing or two about urban warfare from my time fighting in Iraq and leading the campaign to defeat ISIS. Like Hamas, ISIS was deeply embedded in urban areas. And the international coalition against ISIS worked hard to protect civilians and create humanitarian corridors, even during the toughest battles. And so the lesson is not that you can win in urban, con uh, urban warfare by protecting civilians. The lesson is that you can only win in urban warfare by protecting civilians. You see, in this kind of a fight, the center of gravity is the civilian population. And if you drive them into the arms of the enemy, you replace a tactical victory with a strategic defeat. Defense Secretary 
Austin this week and considering his position, speaking no doubt for the president. And Jake, one more clip on this before you tell me if this is a voting issue or just a talking issue. This is Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut on CNN's State of the Union the weekend before last as they were getting ready to come back from Thanksgiving break. We um, regularly condition our aid to allies um, based upon compliance with U.S. law and international law. And so I think it's very consistent with the ways in which we have dispensed aid, especially during wartime, uh, to allies um, for us to talk about making sure that the aid we give Ukraine or the aid we give Israel is used in accordance with human rights laws. And that'll be a conversation we will all be engaged in when we get back to Washington on Monday. So, Jake, is there a new debate in Congress over conditions on aid to Israel regarding civilians in Gaza, or are people just saying things? It's probably a little bit of both, and the devil will be in the details here. I mean, it depends what kind of conditions people try to put on the aid. Now, the House of Representatives, uh, again, controlled by Republicans, would put almost no conditions on the aid to Israel. And um, that would be the prevailing position in the House, joined, by the way, by a number of House Democrats, a large amount of House Democrats would, 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 would like no conditions on the aid. But the movement in the Senate is at the moment, especially among Democrats, is to put some uh, modicum of condition on the aid. So it's probably a voting issue and a talking issue. It is a voting issue right now because there are those. I don't think Chris Murphy is among them. But Bernie Sanders, as you mentioned before, probably will not vote. He said he will not vote to send $14 billion to Israel without conditions. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be something that uh, the leadership, Chuck Schumer, is going to have to deal with um, uh, in order to try to keep his caucus unified. So what what do you think Murphy was referring to if he's not on the same page as Bernie Sanders on this um, in making the point on CNN last week that uh, we regularly condition, and I'm quoting from that clip, we regularly condition our aid to allies based on compliance with U.S. law and international law, and that will be a conversation we will all be engaged in when we get back to Washington on Monday, referring to last Monday. But, can you do a little Chris Murphy reporting on that? Yeah, I mean, listen, there there are there's levels of condition, right? There are more stringent conditions, which is what Bernie Sanders will will insist on, and then Chris Murphy, who is a a very practiced hand when it comes to foreign policy, um, there is boilerplate language, and I don't mean that in a derisive way or a or uh, minimizing it, but there is boilerplate language that you know Israel will have to. Um, uh, uh, comply with international laws and U.S. standards and U.S. laws that they could put in the bill that would be um, wouldn't t- in, in in Republicans' views tie Israel's hands, but would at least give Democrats and supporters of putting condition on the aid something to point to in in the legislation. Jake Sherman with us, co-founder of the D.C. news site Punchbowl News. Let's go on to the anti-Semitism hearing in the House yesterday. This was in the Education and Workforce Committee. I gather it was a five-hour hearing, but here's one of the clips that's getting the most attention. Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik pressed the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania on the question of whether calling for genocide against Jews violates campus speech policy or bullying policy. This went pretty much the same in all three cases. Here's part of the exchange with Harvard President Claudine Gay, who reportedly got the worst of it. At Harvard, 
Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of antisemitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it and crosses is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. The president of Harvard, Claudine Gay, with Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of upstate New York. Jake, I see um, that you tweeted, I think, with some astonishment about that exchange. What distinction were President Gay and the other college presidents trying to make? You know, Brian, I, don't, I actually don't know the answer to that. Uh, I wish I had a better idea of what the answer was to that. Um, I, I, I Personally, this is taking my reporter hat off and putting my Jewish American hat on, which I guess doesn't ever come off, but um, I, I can't imagine that calling for the genocide of the Jewish people uh, would not uh, run afoul of, of bullying or hate standards at any university. I think, I would have to imagine, uh, if, I, if you take the most charitable view, which I, I'm not sure I could do here, uh, but the most charitable view would be that, you know, it, it runs afoul of First Amendment protections of speech, but... Um, I don't, I, I don't quite understand where they're going with this, and I, it, it's astonishing to me. I guess there's at least a single standard issue uh, with respect to the president's answers on calling for genocide against Jews that, that, um, that I don't know if the committee members raised this way, because most of the debate about speech on campus in recent years has been about whether they crack down too much on speech that's considered racist or misogynist or homophobic as speech being a form of violence. Did the president's defender explain what's consistent or inconsistent there? Uh, I don't, I, I'm, if they did, I missed it. I, I mean, this has obviously been a huge issue on college campuses for a long time. And universities have, for the, for, to a large degree, stepped up and said, uh, when speech is hateful, it runs afoul of bullying or harassment or, or, or another, a, a number of other standards. But um, in this case, they don't appear to be doing that. Um, and uh, I, in one university president, I can't remember Brian exactly who it was, but said if, if the speech turns into action, it would be actionable under their standards. I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure what kind of action – uh, we're talking about here. We're talking about genocide. So I would hope that that, that if, if the speech turned into action, it would be it would be actionable or run afoul of the rules. But um, uh, I, let, let's put it this way: the Republicans were not the only ones who were astonished. Uh, reporters, Republicans, and Democrats were all astonished by these answers. To to take a three sixty view of this, did any Democrats say? What about Islamophobia on campus? It's been a dangerous they environment did. for Muslim students for a long time, and that continues now. It's, uh, you know, something like anti-Semitism is very real, and the expressions of it since October 7th are horrifying, but it's also a rough time for Muslim students who appear to non-Muslims to be Muslim students on campus, and that should be part of the conversation, too? 
Yeah, they did. Um, they they absolutely did. Uh, and and by the way, that's a legitimate issue. Uh, I would argue that I would argue that hate speech against any uh, race, creed, religion is is harassment. People should be made to feel safe on on college campuses across the country. I think that's that. There's no doubt about that. I do want to go on in our last couple of minutes to House Speaker Mike Johnson saying that he was going to release some January 6th riot footage and blur the faces of the people involved. Um, are you reporting on this? What's he doing and why? Yes, we are. We, we, we were, I was there yesterday when he said this. Uh, uh, Speaker Mike Johnson is releasing the totality uh, of the uh, January 6th footage, aside from some uh, sensitive security issues. Um, uh, to, in his view, give a more fulsome view of the January 6th riots. Now, let me just say this. I was at the, I was here on January 6th in the Capitol where I'm currently sitting. Uh, I don't think the narrative, as Mike Johnson has said, is wrong around January 6th. It was what everyone thought it was, which was an insurrection against the government. Now, all that said, Johnson said straight up that he, he's blurring the faces of the Department of Justice doesn't charge these individuals. Uh, which is a, a pretty stunning statement. I, I was very surprised by that. Now, his staff later said that the Justice Department has access to the raw footage, so there's no reason for him to, uh, uh, there's no way for him to stop DOJ from charging these people. But it is a good insight into Johnson's view that, that this day, January 6th, was not what everybody or what most people thought it was. How would he defend blurring the faces of people who may be seen committing actual crimes. I, I don't know. It's an indefensible position. Um, now, there are privacy concerns. I think that's fine. But this, is a, this, Brian, is a public building, the Capitol. This is not, a, this is not like you're showing you know, nest footage, footage from someone's home. This is a public building uh, where a group of people tried to stop the counting of the electoral ballots in 2020, in 2021, rather. So I, I don't, I'm not sure what the defensible position is here, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, and I wonder, now that you've probably, as a reporter there, gotten to, to know Mike Johnson a little bit um, more and what he stands for now that he's been elevated to Speaker of the House, one of the things that a lot of Democrats are concerned about is a scenario where there's another Biden-Trump election, another Trump-anybody election, something similar happens, Trump loses but claims that he won and tries to press every political button, every judicial button um, that he can to try to reverse the outcome. Well, ultimately on January 6, 2021, you know, Congress refused to go along. How much more likely does it become potentially just by the fact that Mike Johnson is Speaker in the House if something like that happens at the beginning of 2025? It's a good question, and this is the thing that a lot of people are talking about, which is will Congress stand up to Donald Trump in 2025 or 20, you know, whatever the case is, and I think that's an unknowable. But listen, there's no question that Mike Johnson and congressional Republicans have been unflinchingly supportive of Donald Trump and unwilling to stand up to some of his impulses in the past, and I, I can't imagine that's going to change in any way, shape, or form. Jake Sherman, co-founder of the D.C. politics news site Punchbowl News and co-host of the Daily Punch podcast from Punchbowl News. He's also co-author of the book The Hill to Die On, The Battle for Congress and the Future of Trump's America. Jake, we appreciate it a lot. Thanks. Thank you very much.
Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.